Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to The Wooden O and the Iron Throne, Game of Thrones and Shakespeare. In this episode, we ask why these artists and these stories are so massively globally popular. In particular, we ask what attracts us to their darker, more tragic elements. We also talk about the things that shouldn't attract us, problematic ways that they represent violence, race, and gender. Finally, we ask what art can do when it is willing to look this fearlessly into the problems and the darkness that have always been a part of being human. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you've probably asked yourself this question already. Why do you like this show? That's the question Dr. Jeff Wilson, preceptor of expository writing at Harvard University and author of Shakespeare and Game of Thrones, wanted to ask when someone recommended the show to him. I got into Game of Thrones because my mom recommended it to me, and I watched a few Game of Thrones episodes, and then I called my mother and I said, how do you like this show? Knowing everything that I know about you, mom, and and your uneasiness with graphic violence and your strong dislike of rape culture, how how can you be into this show? This kind of criticism isn't new to the televised spectacles of sex and violence on HBO. It echoes centuries-old criticism about Shakespeare's tragedy, King Lear. In the final scene, Lear enters howling with his beloved daughter Cordelia dead in his arms. Earlier, Lear's daughter Regan and her husband put out the eyes of Lear's friend Gloucester. And in a climactic scene, Regan and her sister Goneril cast the aging King Lear into a violent storm, where he nearly goes mad. Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow! You cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks. In the 18th century, when Samuel Johnson edited Shakespeare's plays, he wrote of King Lear, My learned friend Mr. Wharton remarks that the instances of cruelty are too savage and shocking. The extrusion of Gloucester's eyes seems an act too horrid to be endured in dramatic exhibition. I was many years so shocked by Cordelia's death that I know not whether I ever endured to read again the last scenes of the play till I undertook to revise them as an editor. Similar comments could be made about many scenes in Game of Thrones. The shock of Ned Stark's beheading, the savagery of Ramsay Bolton, the horror of the Red Wedding. And yet, the episodes depicting these events often prove the most popular and most critically acclaimed. And so Game of Thrones, like Shakespeare's King Lear or Macbeth or Coriolanus, makes us ask, not simply how we endure these stories, but why we're drawn to them. This is episode three of The Wooden O and the Iron Throne. Tongue nor heart cannot conceive nor name thee. To think about these questions of why destruction draws us, we speak first with Peter Lucier, a writer on military culture and foreign policy and a fan of Game of Thrones. 
I'm a Marine veteran. And so I've, you know, taken part in not like the Battle of the Bastards or the Winds of Winter, but have seen some combat and, and war stories are full of these intense moments and authors often describe that there's something beautiful about them. Tim, o Tim O'Brien or Michael Ayer in the dispatches talks about the, the beauties of these incredible destructive moments. And obviously like we see these and we're drawn to these both in Game of Thrones and Shakespeare. The Battle of the Bastards and the Winds of Winter are the two episodes that close season six of Game of Thrones. These episodes depict the violent final confrontations between Jon Snow and Ramsay Bolton at Winterfell, and then between Cersei Lannister and the Faith Militant in King's Landing. Both received enormous critical acclaim, hailed not only as some of the best episodes of the show, but as some of the best television episodes of all time. And so they're the perfect place to ask how tragedy and violence can be transformed into art, and how that kind of art transforms us in turn. Yeah, I think of in the show what's almost, you know, a, a perfect episode of television, the, the Battle of the Bastards that we had all been waiting for for so long. And, you know, you get hyped for these moments and then somehow the show just met every expectation. And the one that I'm always drawn back to is the, the pile of bodies and John finds himself beneath it. And it is suffocating. It's so difficult to watch. And yet I've watched it three or four times. Like I keep going back to it and it's so visceral. It, it's diff I find it difficult to breathe while watching it. The Battle of the Bastards presents its violence as so real, so up close, that as you watch Jon Snow almost suffocate, you lose your own breath. The next episode, The Winds of Winter, also depicts acts of extraordinary destruction, but it does so in a strikingly different way. Here's Dr. Maria Devlin-McNair, Shakespeare scholar and creator of Shakespeare for All. In The Winds of Winter, there's kind of a pivot where there's this aesthetic distance that's created. Right? At the be very beginning of that episode, you see all the characters putting on their clothes. Right? There's those shots of them like drawing their hands through the sleeves and putting on rings and getting adorned for the trial that's about to happen. And it's almost like a kind of signal that your mind is, is going into like an aesthetic mode of watching because it's so beautiful. The music is so haunting, melodic and filled with suspense. And as you're watching all of these events sort of building and building and you're going in the sense of anticipation of what's going to happen, I also had this sense of this is so perfectly done, right? This, this reaches a height of aesthetic perfection, the suspense that is built here. And there's something pleasing about that perfection. In fact, if we're looking for a poetics of Game of Thrones, a theory that explains how something so destructive can be so aesthetically attractive, the show itself provides one. 
and it has to do with this idea of perfection. This is Jamie Lannister talking about his first fight alongside the legendary knight, Sir Barristan Selmy. He was a painter. A painter who only used red. I couldn't imagine being able to fight like that. Not back then. And to help him do it, to be a part of something that perfect. I don't need to explain how that felt, not to you. Perfection, as Jamie uses it here, isn't a moral term. It's a formal one. It means that something is complete. It's not missing anything or falling short anywhere. It's flawless. It's full up. It's gone as far as it can go. Art that goes as far as it can go, even into horror, has a quality that 19th century romantic critics called sublime. In his 1757 treatise on aesthetics, Edmund Burke wrote, Whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. In her book, This is Shakespeare, Professor Emma Smith explains how romantic critics found the beauty in King Lear by applying this notion of the sublime. The shock of the play could be, quote, elevated into a state of philosophical and physiological fulfillment. The job of great art is to approach that excess of feeling through its encounter with, quote, terrible objects. And that for me captures a little bit of, of the sensations we get from these two back-to-back episodes, The Battle of the Bastards and The Winds of Winter. These terrible objects that produce the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. The violence and destruction in Shakespeare's tragedies and Game of Thrones isn't like what we'd get from a random sampling of the nightly news. It's tragic horror dramatized so exquisitely, so completely, that by its very scale, it transcends mere shock and is transformed into art, sublime art. Here's Anton Lesser, who played the character of Kyburn in Game of Thrones. I think that the juxtaposition of such beauty and such appalling, it's like, I don't know, it's like watching depictions of the Holocaust with a soundtrack of the most transcendently beautiful music going on. So you're being asked to sort of compute in yourself how this could possibly have ever happened, the Holocaust, or the destruction of King's Landing or whatever. How can such terrible things happen in a world that is also sublimely beautiful? I think we go back to this thing about the potential for for the greatest possible violence and evil within us and the greatest possible good. Those sort of episodes, those sort of scenes, they take this thing that we never have to face and we're asked to say, have a look at this and deal with what's going on in your heart and in your head and juggle them and at the same time make 12 decisions And that's what ruling and power offers you. Could you deal with it? No, you absolutely couldn't. And you know what? That's the tragedy of life. (laughs) That's part of the tragedy of being human. So 
you're not expected to know how to do that. And I think it's just, it's just, it's so thrilling. We're actually sort of made to feel two opposing extreme things all at the same time. Somehow or other, that is both appalling and very, very challenging, but wonderful. Part of what's challenging about these works is that they force us to confront hard truths about ourselves, including the fact that we find violence thrilling. This is how Pete Lucier reacted to his own reaction to the winds of winter. It's so pleasurable to have something truly grand and sublime and large put on as if it's for my entertainment. And there's something really human about that and really challenging and in some ways uncomfortable. What does it mean about us that we want to see and be a part of these things, not at the most kind of intimate visceral level, but to stand back and sip wine like Circe and, and watch it unfold. And it's, it's wonderful and, and uncomfortable and, and makes you feel um, guilty in some really interesting ways. That discomfort might arise when we respond to these spectacles with aesthetic judgments and not with other kinds of judgments. In The Winds of Winter, the perfection of Circe's plot and of the show's own production style frames the destruction of the Sept of Baylor as another art object. For Circe, the event is literally framed. But of course, it's not art to Circe's victims. You see her watching the set of Baylor from a great ways away, right? You see it through her window, through the frame of her window. She's watching it there. Like, this is spectacle, this is theater to her. She takes that sip of wine after she watches it happen. I feel like it almost moves us to that place we're experiencing it as, at an, an aesthetic distance. And so it's the perfection of the art that's been created there that we're registering and not maybe the people who've been destroyed. I feel like with Game of Thrones, once you get to that point where the power is so great that it becomes almost perfected, then it kind of takes on that aesthetic quality. And so I find myself just sort of in admiration of someone like Tywin or Daenerys in a way that kind of brackets my consideration of their moral identity. That's what's potentially dangerous about art that aestheticizes violence. It can switch off certain modes of thinking, which would otherwise be telling us these are not spectacles to embrace. I think when you look at Shakespeare as the most celebrated English language author, and then you look at Game of Thrones as the most popular 21st century television show, you have to be extremely pessimistic about the human race. <laughs> Because, so you think about Hamlet, right? Our, our, our most celebrated English literary text is all about suicide. And we're just okay with that. And you think about Game of Thrones and our most celebrated recent television show is all about rape. And we're okay with that. Just what is wrong with us? Many scholars of Shakespeare and Game of Thrones have been dealing with these questions. How the stories represent rape, how they represent women, and how they represent other disempowered groups, including non-European races. In thinking about why we love these stories, we also have to ask what we should not love about them. On the one hand, you have the racism and sexism of Game of Thrones that has been talked about by scholars like uh, Shiloh Carroll and Kavita Mudane Finn and Helen Young and Matt Hardy. On the other hand, you have the racism and sexism in Shakespeare's history plays 
which is talked about uh, by the likes of Nina Levine and Gene Howard and Phyllis Rackin with respect to gender and then with respect to the amazing Shake Race hashtag that you can follow on Twitter. You have scholars like Kim Hall and Ayanna Thompson, Ambarine Dadaboy, who have been thinking really, really hard about race and Shakespeare. And one of the fascinating things to me is that you see the same texture of critical conversation grow up in response to Shakespeare's history plays and in response to Game of Thrones, especially with Shakespeare's first tetralogy. That's where you get a lot of the best female characters in Shakespeare's entire works. Oh, French woman! Could I come near your beauty with my nails? I'd set my Ten Commandments in your face! You get Joan of Arc. You get Margaret, who, who are just fearless. You get Eleanor, and, and you get Marjorie Jordan, and, and you have these, these witches and Machiavellian women and, and military leaders who are out on the battlefield who are breaking some of the stereotypes of female characters at the time. You also get a lot of misogyny, and you get a lot of patriarchy, and so, in response to Shakespeare's uh, first tetralogy, feminist critics have this really ambivalent uh, reaction. Similarly, with respect to race, it's, it's less ambivalent because Shakespeare's history plays are not explicitly concerned with race in the way that a text like Merchant of Venice or Othello might be, but they're telling this national story about different nations, different ethnicities, the English, the Irish, the French coming into conflict with one another. And you see those group tensions and group dynamics, and you see often some of the not pretty aspects of identity that can come along with uh, those kinds of conflicts. So with gender and race and Shakespeare's history plays, you get people who sense that Shakespeare's trying to break some molds here and is trying to do some interesting, what we might call progressive things with gender and race. But you also see that Shakespeare's working within this English history play genre that seems to kind of reel him in at every possible moment because it is fundamentally at its core focused on telling the story of succession from one English king to another, which is always one male English king, one white male English king to the next white male English king. And then you see the exact same thing happen with Game of Thrones. George R.R. R. Martin self-identifies as a feminist. You get some really strong, powerful, amazing female characters. You also get a lot of misogyny in Game of Thrones. You also get a lot of patriarchy. Nowhere do the forces of female power and patriarchy clash more dramatically than in the story of Daenerys Targaryen. In the show's first episode, her brother sells her as a bride to call Drogo in exchange for Drogo's army a story she later recounts to Jon Snow when she becomes a queen with an army of her own. I spent my life in foreign lands. So many men have tried to kill me. I don't remember all their names. I have been sold like a brood mare. I've been shamed and betrayed, raped and defiled. Do you know what kept me standing through all those years in exile? Faith. Not in any gods. Not in myths and legends. In myself. In Daenerys Targaryen. You get George R.R. R. Martin, like Shakespeare, going to great lengths to show how patriarchy and misogyny are fundamentally villainous and tragic and to make that critique, but that's still making it about 
the racists and the misogynists as opposed to the people who have had to experience those systems. And you really don't get that shift in either Shakespeare's history plays or in Game of Thrones to stories that center upon people who are different than white English males, people who are different from the white Westerosi males who are in charge of the power in Martin's narrative. You, you never really get that shift from critique of patriarchy, misogyny, racism into a full embrace and a, a, a celebration of the stories that can come from centering different perspectives and different people in them. There is one important shift Martin does make towards centering different kinds of stories, and it's a shift away from Shakespeare. In our first episode, we discussed the character of Richard III. George R. R. Martin is obsessed with Richard III, and when Tyrion says that he has a soft spot in his heart for crippled bastards and broken things, that's George R. R. Martin speaking. Shakespeare's Richard is a diabolically clever villain whose moral deformity is ostensibly reflected in the physical deformity of his hunchbacked body. But Martin rewrites this story. With Shakespeare, Richard III engages with societal stigma and becomes a villain, and it ends up in a tragic model. With Martin, he's interested in exploring how the experience of negotiating social stigma can have a more heroic narrative to it, can, can strengthen character, can, can lead to the overcoming of adversity and so forth. And so you'll notice that all of the, the protagonists in Game of Thrones, all of the noble characters, all the characters that we cheer for have some aspect of their identity that has been stigmatized by society and they have to engage with that. That is straight out of Richard III. In its very first episode, Game of Thrones highlights this condition of stigma, bearing some physical or social marker that sets you apart from others and sets you up for social rejection. Tyrion, who is a dwarf, speaks from his experience to Jon Snow, who is labeled a bastard. Let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you. What the hell do you know about being a bastard? All dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. In Game of Thrones, there's a tremendous range of these stigmatized identities. Being a homosexual, being an unfeminine woman, or even simply being a woman. Having dyslexia, being castrated, being scarred by disease, having no right hand, or being unable to walk. In the final episode, the new king's name even reflects his stigma. All hail Bran the Broken, first of his name, king of the Andals and the first men, lord of the six kingdoms and protector of the realm. Disability is everywhere in Game of Thrones, right? Sometimes it's a congenital disability that someone was born with. Sometimes it's acquired through war or through abuse, through violence or other means. But, you know, having to deal with that situation, having to figure out how I'm going to live my life after engaging with both the physical reality of impairment as well as the social dynamic of people who are casting judgments on you, um, making assumptions about you. It, it 
it just creates really compelling narratives for characters to go through. One of the most compelling narratives of Stigma is Tyrion Lannister's. It's in his storyline that George R.R. Martin most clearly rewrites Richard III's. Here's Richard and Tyrion. Why I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain. I wish I had enough poison for the whole pack of you. I would gladly give my life to watch you all swallow it. Samarin! Samarin! This last clip makes Tyrion sound very much like the villainous Richard III, embracing the thought of murder. But the scene as a whole actually highlights their differences. Tyrion is on trial for killing King Joffrey. Just before he declares his desire to poison the crowd, he says, I wish I was the monster you think I am because he knows he is not really a monster or a villain like Richard. Just like he knows he didn't commit the crime he's being tried for. He has simply been treated as a monster his whole life because he is a dwarf. But his stigma doesn't lead him to seek revenge on the world. It leads him to sympathize with those who also suffer. Tyrion is the one who proposes that Bran be made king, just as he was the one who, long ago, designed a saddle for Bran after he suffered his fall so that the boy who couldn't walk could still ride. Is this some kind of trick? Why do you want to help him? I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. In some cases, according to Jeff Wilson, there's not much deeper meaning to the question of why viewers embrace stories like Shakespeare's tragedies and Game of Thrones. We have an appetite for graphic, martial, and sexual violence. And art gives us a cover to indulge that appetite. Both Shakespeare and Game of Thrones probably give us just enough of an intellectualization of these horrible things that happen in life and enough titillation with those horrible things to allow us to justify to ourselves spending our time enjoying this, this art, spending our time engaging with it without just feeling like we're satisfying our most basic pleasure principles as, as base human beings. But for other viewers, even if they were initially pulled in by the blood or the sex or the shock, that might not be what kept them there. That's how Anton Lesser, who is also a Shakespearean actor, thinks about why audiences were first drawn into Shakespeare. If you think of Shakespeare, he was appealing to the whole strata, wasn't he? If you think of the groundlings in the in the pit at the Globe and the people in the top, maybe he was attracting people who you might almost patronisingly judge to be interested in low art. They came along for the bawdy, they came along for the gags, they came along for the for the jokes. He was so brilliant because maybe they came along for that and were perforce opened to what you might decide is high art. Maybe they, they, they came to that theatre in one state and left in a very different state and maybe left having to sort of reassess why they came. Maybe they laughed at the jokes, but got something else as well. 
The sweet and bitter fool will presently appear. The one in motley here, the other found out there. Thou call me fool, boy. All thy other titles thou hast given away, that thou wast born with. This is not altogether fool, my lord. That something else we find in Shakespeare might be certain kinds of knowledge about human nature, as King Lear gains some knowledge here about his own folly. We might also find an experience of realizing just how much we don't know. When I watch something like Game of Thrones, or I watch Gloucester having his eyes pulled out in King Lear, it's not drawing me because I'm into violence. I mean, certain sections of society, yes, clearly, they, they like watching violence, they like watching explicit sex scenes, because that's, that's their thing. But, but I think a lot of people are drawn to that because they recognise that all of that, all of the potential for the worst, the worst instincts are part of a picture of what it is to be a human being that is, it can't be partial. And when, it, when we, see, we see all the aspects of our nature as a human, we are heaven and hell. We are beasts, we are animals, we are angels, we are lovers, we are, we're, we're a nightmare, we're a mess, we're, we're, we're the whole range, the whole spectrum of everything. That's the human part. I will not do it! lest I should cease to honour mine own truth, or by my body's action teach my mind the most inherent baseness. At thy choice, then! It is my more dishonour to beg of thee than thou of them. Come all to ruin! Let thy mother rather feel thy pride than fear thy dangerous stubbornness, for I mock at death with as big heart as thou. Do as thou list. But the other part of being a human being is the beingness, and the being, the being that seems to be recognised because we allow the whole picture, the beingness of ourselves is the potential for real goodness, I think. And, th and that, I think, is what we get when we watch this horrific exposition of the totality of what it is to be a human being. We're, we're not just fed a nice story that ends happily and we watch in a very knowing, safe way, oh, yeah, he's the good person, he's the bad person, and I know what's going to happen. And we feel... We feel sort of affirmed in our very fixed position of what we think it is to be good and moral and kind and nice. We usually watch from that position of, oh, okay, I know where I am. And when you watch something like Game of Thrones, not only are you fed the whole kaleidoscope of this thing called being human, you are, you are not allowed to take a position. You are not allowed to know to know you are placed in a, pl a position of not knowing all the time. What then? What rest? <laughs> Try what repentance can. Oh, what can it not? But what can it when one cannot repent? Oh wretched state oh bosom black as death oh life
timid soul that's struggling to be free and more engaged. Help, angels, make assay. Game of Thrones and Shakespeare's tragedies force us to experience that uncomfortable, disturbing position of not knowing. But strangely, those same works of art that force us into not knowing are also the ones that can lead us to deeper understanding. I think there's a special alchemy that happens when the author is himself open to, to, to some, something other than a fixed perspective. When there, when there is not a fixed idea trying to be communicated, but the author himself, because of something that he's been touched by, in the case of George R. R. Martin, when you have an author like him, like Shakespeare, who's clearly a very evolved being, he was probably a sage. When that mind produces a work of art, when it's a mind that itself has been permeated by light in some way or whose heart has been touched in some way, and they somehow compelled because of that experience to write in a particular way that doesn't obscure that that interest, that thread that's being explored, then that is communicated. There are pieces of writing that that are the conduit for this golden thread of investigation into what's really true. Now, obviously, we all re- respond to these things in different ways. And, and some people watch Game of Thrones and think, nah, it's not, I don't get it. So clearly it's not, it's not infallible as a means of touching everybody. But certainly with the, the greats, the Shakespeare, Chekhov, Tolstoy, Beethoven, Mozart, blah, blah, you know, the, the, pop, the popular, <laughs> the ones, seem, seemingly they, they have, it's worked for many, 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 many people. They have been sensitive to something that transcends a good story. So what is that transcendent thing that goes beyond a good story? If we think of art reflecting life, which is what certainly George R. R. Martin is concerned about. That's why he includes so much death and destruction, because he believes it should be a reflection of what life includes, which is very much, you know, death is an important part of that. If art reflects life, or art, what does Shakespeare say, holds the mirror up to nature, that's its purpose, then hopefully we're going to get trying to get access to something called truth. But it's a very different truth to chronological or historical truth. It's a, it's a truth that's something to do with our inner state, something to do with absolutes rather than relatives. Truth with a capital T. Somehow or other, through all the storytelling, there is, all the time, the potential for the stories to point to something you could say was absolute. Maybe we do love works of art like Game of Thrones and Shakespeare's plays because their size, their scale, their reaching for the perfect or the transcendent or the sublime makes us sense that they are bringing us closer to some more absolute form of truth. 
We might also sense that they say something truthful because we feel we'll never get to the end of what they might have to say. I love the fact that somebody else said that, you know, Shakespeare and the really great writing is like a jewel with so many facets. And that each time you pick this jewel up, maybe in a, in a new production, a new rehearsal period, you're never going to see, look through the same facet at the light that's inside there. You're always going to be looking through a slightly different one. So it's infinitely interpretable, infinitely revealing of, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, truth with a big T. This is why Shakespeare for All focuses on the questions that each play asks. No one course can reveal the infinite truth contained in a great work of art. What we can do is offer you some new facets to examine the light that lives inside. We hope it will illuminate something for you. This course featured sound clips from HBO's Game of Thrones and from BBC Two's The Hollow Crown, The Wars of the Roses, with Benedict Cumberbatch as Richard III, Luke Treadaway as the Earl of Richmond, Hugh Bonneville as the Duke of Gloucester, Sally Hawkins as the Duchess of Gloucester, and Sophie Okonedo as Queen Margaret. This course also featured the following performances from Shakespeare. In episode one, Samuel West as Brutus, presenting in the Intelligence Squared debate, Shakespeare vs. Milton, the Kings of English Literature, 2014. In episode two, Marlon Brando as Antony and Julius Caesar from 1953, Kenneth Branagh as Henry V in Henry V, 1989, Patrick Stewart as Claudius in Hamlet, RSC, BBC Two from 2009. In episode three, John Gilgood as King Lear, in King Lear, BBC Three Radio Drama, 1994. David Morrissey as Richard III from Shakespeare's Solos by The Guardian from 2016. Laurence Olivier, John Hurt, and Colin Blakely as King Lear, The Fool, and Kent in King Lear from 1983. Tom Hiddleston as Coriolanus and Deborah Finley as Volumnia in Coriolanus, The Donmar Warehouse from 2013. Patrick Stewart as Claudius in Hamlet, RSC, BBC Two, 2009. The Wooden O and the Iron Throne is written by Maria Devlin McNair. The narrator is me, Zachary Davis. Original music is by Jack Pombriant. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can get access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. Thanks for listening. See you next time.